Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Quiet End, written by Pam Farley. A Twisted Tale of Vengeance When a spate of sudden deaths occurs amongst the elderly in Ellie's hometown, the South Australian ambulance officer grows concerned. After a man purporting to be the relative of one of the deceased, who clearly is not, moves into the old man's house, she becomes suspicious. She alerts a local cop, Nick, who takes her concern seriously. Nick's estranged brother, Nam, has a successful security software company in Sydney, as well as other thriving enterprises. The idea of hastening the demise of the elderly and, in turn, freeing up real estate for refugee families in need is Nam's but it is far from a pragmatic scheme with a benevolent intent. Nam's devoted assistant Lawrence oversees Angus and Jared, employed to carry out humane euthanasia, quiet end, on the old people who are selected because they have no family members. But Jared is a sadist, and not all of the deaths are peaceful. Evidence of this arouses the suspicion of Ellie when she visits some of the post-mortem scenes. It is no accident that Nam has chosen to begin this sordid enterprise in the area where his brother lives and works. Nam's hatred of Nick runs deep because of a horrific event during their teenage years, and he is hell-bent on revenge. Nam's all-consuming spite is about to be tested, and he may realize there are more important things in life than vengeance. And now for your listening pleasure. An excerpt from Quiet End. Chapter One Morris padded across the kitchen linoleum to put the kettle on for what would be the last time in his life. Winter's final onslaught struck with teeth. Outside, frost whitened the grass and ice glossed the front gate. It stuck to the fingertips of the stranger as he opened it. The rising sun was still a faint promise on the eastern horizon. Not even the birds responded to its faint glow. Inside, the house retained some warmth. Morris should have worn his slippers, because it was so cold, but he couldn't find them. His caregiver had a habit of putting things away, and not always where they belonged. His joints protested as he moved popping and grinding while he gritted his false teeth at the sudden flares of pain. The edge of the sink took his weight as he struggled to turn off the tap. It dripped if he didn't turn the faucet enough. Too much, and it was painful for his swollen fingers the next time he tried to budget. The water took an age to boil. At first, just a hiss from the electric kettle. Next, the rumble of the water within. And then an eruption of steam, accompanied by the bright glow of an incongruously blue light, which cut out at a predetermined temperature. The thought of taking a trick to the toilet at the end of the hallway crossed his mind. But the painful journey there, and the usual disappointment he felt when his urine came out in less than a trickle, thanks to the occlusion caused by his enlarged prostate, was enough to make him wait. The bottle by the bed was repellent, but a necessary evil these days. He poured his tea carefully at the bench. He chose a large mug, but only half filled it. 
knowing that it stood a better chance of remaining in the cup as he made his way back to bed. Step by painful step was accompanied by the sound of his deep inhalations, wheezes and rattles, so loud even he could hear it. When Morris reached his bed, it was like arriving in paradise. He settled his tea on the table by the bedside and burrowed beneath the quilt. His knees and ankles throbbed dully as he made himself comfortable. Most of his energy was spent, and he wouldn't move again until Debbie arrived. She would chatter inanely, and he would pretend to be exasperated by her talk, but secretly he loved having her around. She was like a whirlwind, and her enthusiasm annoyed and overjoyed him in equal parts. He thought about turning on the television, but found morning TV shows to be vacuous, with air-headed presenters pretending to have important opinions on world matters, all the while posing and hoping the cameras loved them. The news channel was better, but he wasn't sure he wanted to hear about another suicide bomber or threatened rumbles from North Korea. Morris sighed and sipped his tea. He dozed for what only seems a second, but must have been almost an hour, because the back door opened, and Debbie never got to him before eight o'clock. Funny, he thought, how it was still so dark outside. Hello, Debbie, he called out. He thought they were likely to be the only words he would manage to get out once she arrived. He made sure he wasn't smiling. He didn't want her to know how much he anticipated her entrance. Who the hell are you? Morris asked, his old heart beating a bit faster in his chest. Your caregiver has called in sick today, the man said without introducing himself. He wore black trousers and a white T-shirt with the senior care logo, but missing was the identifying photo ID clipped to his shirt or hanging from a lanyard. Debbie's sick? Morris wondered if the man picked up on the suspicion in his voice. That's right. Debbie is sick today, but I'm going to look after you. The man carried a small tray with a white plastic cup on it. I have your morning medications ready for you, and here's some water to wash them down with. But I don't like to take my tablets until after I've eaten, Morris protested. They make me feel sick on an empty stomach. The man's face remained placid, but his stance was threatening. I don't have time to muck around, old boy. I've come here as a favor to Debbie, but I have my own work to do. Here, down the hatch and no arguments. But Morris did want to argue. He did not like this change to his routine, and he didn't much like the way this young upstart stood over him like some pretend sergeant major. He was about to voice his displeasure when the man leaned over and clutched Morris's forearm in an iron grip. There was the trace of a smile on the man's face as he twisted it. The pain ran all the way to Morris's arthritic shoulder. He would have spoken up, but there was anger in the man's face now and madness in his eyes. Take your medications right now. The threatening tone came through gritted teeth. Morris trembled, and tears rolled down his cheeks. Hot urine saturated his groin, but he had no time to regret not visiting the loo earlier. 
He swallowed down his pills. There were more than his usual four, and they almost got stuck in his throat. He began to gag. The man forced so much water into Morris's mouth that he felt some of the liquid go up his nose. When the tablets finally went down, he rubbed his aching throat, which brought on a coughing fit. Drips from his nose pattered onto his pillow, and he wiped them away with his dressing gown sleeve. See? It wasn't that hard, was it, old mate? Where are you going? Morris asked the man as he strode to the doorway. He received no reply. You'll need to change my bedding. I've had an accident. You can't leave. For a second, Morris thought about getting out of bed and phoning the agency that employed his caregivers. He had a good mind to report this man. He could describe him accurately. Morris was sure they would know the man in an instant, especially when Morris mentioned his massive build and the star tattooed on his neck. Morris yawned. The thought of getting out of bed seemed like a mammoth task. Perhaps he was overreacting. Perhaps the man was too busy for patience and pleasantries. And besides, he only peed the bed a little. It wasn't really soaked. He yawned again and closed his eyes. He truly hoped that Debbie would be back the next day. Ellie jumped when her ambulance-issued pager went off, as she always did. She looked at the small screen and saw it read P1. It was the highest priority, which meant the patient was unconscious and not breathing adequately, if at all. At this time of the morning, it usually meant someone died overnight. Either way, she had to get moving. There was always the possibility of resuscitation, but only if they got there fast. Her car fishtailed as she pulled out onto the dirt road. She hardly paused as she reached the highway. With no traffic in sight, she sped up to a hundred kilometers per hour and maintained that speed until she reached the outskirts of her small town. She was first to arrive and keyed up the roller door, opened the ambulance, and fired up the radio and mobile data terminal screen. She entered in her login information, and the patient details appeared. Her partner would take a minute longer to arrive, so she radioed communications and eased the ambulance out of the bay. As soon as Erica got into the passenger seat, she hit the lights and siren, and they drove off. They didn't need the GPS to show them where they were going. Morris Harrop was not a patient they would have termed a frequent flyer, but he'd been in the ambulance a few times, mostly after falls and once following a suspected stroke. Ellie and Erica braced themselves for the corner, and again further up the road for an old man who pulled his Ford Focus out in front of them without looking. It was a fairly common occurrence. This was a retirement town with almost half the population over 60 years of age. Ellie flattened the accelerator pedal as she passed the old man and prayed he wouldn't decide to turn in front of them. They made it and sped away with the siren howling all the way to the coast. The sun was bright and took some of the chill from the air. The traffic was lazy at this time of day. The workers were long gone, and the kids were already at school. Most of the traffic belonged to the older residents going shopping. There was a car parked outside Morris's house. He lived alone, so it was probably his caregiver. 
Ellie pulled across the driveway and leapt from the truck. She and Erica pulled their bags of equipment from the side door and quickly went into the house. It only took one glance to see that Morris was dead. But Ellie listened for a heartbeat while Erica checked his pupils. Fixed and dilated, Erica said. No heartbeat and his peripheries are cold. No rigor yet. Let's put the MRX on him just to be sure. They placed the ECG dots on his skin and watched the monitor display. A sisterly. Nothing to shock? Certainly did. They stepped away from the scene without touching any of the surroundings. This was almost certainly a natural death, but the police would still prefer no interference, just in case. Ellie looked at the young caregiver. She couldn't have been more than 19 or 20. Her face was pale, but her eyes were red. She blew her nose noisily. Are you okay? Ellie asked. The girl began to sob. I, I really liked Marie. He was an old grump, but he was special. Ellie touched the girl's shoulder. They are all special. Did he have any family? No, none that I ever heard about. His wife died about ten years ago. When did you find him? At about nine o'clock. I was called early this morning to say my shift was cancelled, but I don't know why. I thought it was a mistake, so I came round to see Maury anyway. If it hadn't been for that call, I may have been able to help him. Ellie shook her head. He was very old. I think it was his time. I'm so sorry. It's so cold in here. I usually get here and put the heater on so it's warm for his shower. The silly old bugger used to worry about how much it cost to run. But now he's died in the cold. The girl began to cry again. Erica led the girl to the kitchen and poured her a glass of water. When she returned, she began packing their gear in the ambulance while Ellie radioed communications. The patient is deceased, she said. Say, Pole are on their way. The voice on the radio announced. Ellie gave a small smile. Merv had been working communications much longer than her six years as an ambo, but his tone never changed. He spoke in a lifeless monotone, as if he was stoned or drunk or both. His voice epitomized deadpan. Thanks, Merv. Have a fun day. Merv only grunted in reply. The police had to come from Kadena, a town almost 20 kilometers away, because Munta had no station anymore. Cutbacks played a huge part, and the low crime rate was another factor. Old people didn't tend to get into much mischief. It was just a formality for the police to attend and oversee transportation of the body. Morris had comorbidities. Not unusual for a man of his age. His doctor would be there shortly to sign a death certificate. Then the old boy would be off to the funeral home, only six or so blocks away. The caregiver was sitting at the kitchen table, head in hands, but no longer crying. Ellie left her with her thoughts. She strolled to the dining room and looked around. It was so typical of an elderly person's house. There was a china cabinet filled with all the personally precious items collected over the old man's lifetime. Now they were probably headed for the local charity shop. 
The wall opposite the window was covered with photographs, as was the chiffonier and the piano top. There was a black-and-white photo of a baby in some kind of elaborate gown, but Ellie presumed it was Morris, probably at his christening. There were a few of his wedding day. His bride looked like a young Elizabeth Taylor, and a younger Morris gazed at her with love or longing. Ellie sighed with sadness. Every time they had a death on the job, she felt a bit empty. The feeling would pass soon enough. She heard voices out on the street and knew it would be the police. Before she left, she took a final glance around, but then looked back a second time. There was a recent photo of a man in his late thirties or early forties with jet black hair and tan skin. The photograph was in a plain wooden frame and sat inharmoniously amongst the ornate and aged pictures. It was so out of place it made her shudder. When Erica called her from the doorway, Ellie jumped. Erica laughed and called her a toi. Suddenly, the picture was forgotten. Four more calls took up the rest of the day. Two were long-distance trips. And by seven o'clock that evening, Ellie was too tired to remember the strange moment. She turned off her pager and poured a glass of red wine. Her two dogs sat on either end of the couch. There was just enough room for her to sit between them. Before she sat down, her phone rang. Hello? Hi, Ellie. What are you doing? It was her friend Sylvia. They previously worked as nurses in the surgical ward at the regional hospital in Wallaroo, a town that, along with Munta and Kadena, made up the Copper Triangle. Ellie quit when her dad became ill more than six years before, but the two remained close. Ellie smiled at the sound of her friend's voice. What are you doing? She asked again. I just finished my ambo shift. I'm about to have a well-earned drink. No, come out with me. Oh, no, Sylph. I haven't even taken my uniform off. I need to shower before I feel human. And I don't think I can be bothered. Are you on call tomorrow? Um, Ellie could guess where this conversation was going. You're not, are you? So, there's no reason why you can't get ready and come out. No reason except that I'm tired. And I really can't be bothered. Please, Ellie. I really want to go out. And no one wants to go with me. Maybe that's a hint that you should have an early night, too. I'll pretend you didn't say that. We see life and death every day. You know we shouldn't waste a second. Oh, please. Don't try to shame me with your righteous philosophy when I'm tired. My body says rest. I say, okay. Your body is being stupid. Come on, Ellie. There's a good DJ at the club. And when I drove past just now, the place was packed. Seriously, Silva, I don't care if it's packed with naked Chippendales. I can't be bothered. She glanced at her corgi and retriever who were dozing. And I've spent no time with Hannah or Tyrion today. Don't worry about your dogs tonight. This is more important. And Nick's car was there. Ellie almost dropped her wine glass, and red droplets splashed her uniform. Damn, she cursed. You see, you do want to come out. I don't even know the guy.
Well, this could be your chance to get to know him. Sylph, I really have to go. I just lost wine on my greens, and I need to wash them before it stains. Perfect. Have a quick shower, and I'll pick you up in twenty minutes. Wear something stunning. No. But the line went dead. God damn you, Sylvia. There was a line at the club door and a freezing wind blowing up the street. Seeing the waiting crowd did nothing to improve Ellie's mood. She and Sylvia argued during the drive, but once they reached the halfway point, Ellie gave up. She had to make the most of the evening, but she wasn't happy. Ellie looked at all the young girls wearing shoestring tops and miniskirts. They didn't seem to feel the cold. They looked like painted dolls and didn't seem normal. Most of these are kids, she complained to Sylvia. I know, but they're probably 18. They all look younger the older we get. My dad would have had a fit if I dressed like that. Sylvia frowned at her and said, Don't rewrite history, Ellie. You wore less clothes than that back in the day. I did not. Ellie rubbed her heating cheeks and looked away. Sylvia waved to the doorman, a friend of her brother's, and he beckoned them in. You old girls don't need to show ID, he commented with a grin. Ellie gave him the finger, and he laughed. The pub was pumping. It was a small venue, and the music seemed to bounce off the walls. This place is too noisy, Ellie complained. What? Sylvia screamed back. Ellie shook her head and went to the bar on the other side of the room. She had to hip and shoulder past enthusiastic kids, dancing like they were throwing fits. Sylvia followed but paused to dance to the chorus of a song that Ellie only vaguely recognized. Isn't it about time you grew up, Sylvia? Isn't it about time you lightened up, Ellie? Do you want to sit back there? It looks quieter. We might be able to talk without screaming. Sylvia shrugged, picked up their drinks, and led the way. Ellie collapsed into her chair and kicked her shoes off under the table. Don't go to sleep on me, Sylvia said in a facetious tone. I'm here, aren't I? Ellie replied between gritted teeth. Yes, you are. And thanks. I really needed to get out tonight. Don't mention it. Ellie said dryly. Sylvia seemed tense. Her mouth was fixed in a grin. Or was it something else? After a moment, Ellie asked, Are you okay? Sylvia stared at her drink and ran a finger around the rim of the glass. I quit my job today. Wow! Why? Oh, you know what it's like. I had enough of that bitch in charge. She rubbed me the wrong way first thing this morning. By lunchtime, I couldn't think of a single reason to stay. What will you do? Oh, I don't know. Something easy that doesn't involve so many frail egos. Maybe aged care or a pub. There are drunk egos in a pub. Yeah, well, perhaps a stint in aged care. There's an assessor's position available at one of the in-home care departments. It sounds really cushy, and the pay is pretty good. You couldn't have known about this job just today, Sylvia smiled coyly. 
Maybe I did already know about it. You were looking for an escape. Maybe. Drink up. I feel like dancing. Ellie groaned as she followed her to the dance floor. But once they moved to the beat, Ellie had to admit she was having fun. Almost an hour passed when two things happened almost simultaneously. At a break in the music, Ellie's phone rang. And from behind her, she was tapped on the shoulder. She dropped her phone and only just saved it from being stepped on by a lad jumping on the spot while he waved his hands in the air, calling out to the DJ to play a song she'd never heard of. She checked the phone screen. It was undamaged, but she missed the call. The ID came up as peer support. They always called following a job involving a death. From behind, Nick asked, Did you have a bad case today? An involuntary shiver ran down her spine, but it wasn't unpleasant. He had that effect on her. Ellie smiled and turned to face him. An elderly patient passed away, but it was still sad. He nodded. Ellie knew that as a cop he dealt with the same scenes she did, and some were harder than others to get over. She and Nick never had a proper conversation, just a bit of chit-chat and the usual course of jobs that involve police and ambulance staff, car accidents and domestic violence mostly. He gave her a smile and she felt her face flush. She wondered if it was legal to smile that way. It turned her to jelly. Can I get you a drink? Ellie shrugged and scanned the room for Sylvia. Her friend was now dancing with two women from the local veterinary hospital. I have a drink somewhere. She looked over toward the table at the back of the room. You shouldn't leave your drink unattended. Anyone could spike it. I'll buy you a new one. Ellie stifled a giggle, but Nick saw it. I'm sorry, he said. I don't mean to come across like a cop. It's just that you should be careful. No, you're right. I just don't think anyone who was going to bother trying a date rape would pick me. I'm a thousand years old, and there are plenty of younger, more vulnerable girls in this pub. Well, I must be a thousand years old, too, because you are the prettiest girl here. Ellie laughed, and Nick dropped his gaze. She had the feeling that he didn't intend to say that out loud. His embarrassment made her bold. Tell you what, old boy, I'll get us a drink. Beer? Draft on tap is good. Ellie elbowed her way past a huddle of girls using the bar as a backdrop for their phone selfies and got the drinks. Then she followed Nick. He stopped briefly to introduce her to his mates. They had cop written all over them, including the tall redhead she talked to at length following a serious car crash the previous month. They were waiting for the retrieval chopper at the time. He gave her a friendly hello. The others just stared. Nick kept walking, and they sat at the same table she shared with Sylvia. Ellie eyed her abandoned drink, which now had a cigarette butt floating in it. Quite a surprise, since smoking was banned in all but the pub's courtyard. See? Nick said with a grin. Your drink has been tampered with. Yep, you're right, she replied with a laugh. So, what brings you out in the middle of the week? It's Con's birthday. Otherwise, I wouldn't have bothered. I have a six o'clock start in the morning. Ouch. 
I have a sleep-in planned. Lucky girl. I have to wait until next Monday, and then I have four days off. Oh, well, you can be smug then, and I'll be the jealous one. So is that why you're out tonight? Because it's your day off tomorrow? No, not really. My plans for this evening involved a glass of red in my jammies and a couple of episodes of True Detectives with my dogs for company. Sounds good. So, what happened? Oh, Sylvia quit her job today, so she wanted to celebrate. Nick gazed at the people on the dance floor for a moment. He pointed to Sylvia. The tall girl on the gold top? Yes, that's her. Isn't she a nurse? Yes, we used to work together. So you were a nurse, too? Yes. Technically, I still am, until I fail to renew my registration and CE. I have to nurse a minimum of 450 hours in five years. I cover shifts when staff are on holidays for the local nursing home to make that up, but mostly I work on the ambulance. You had enough of nursing at the hospital? Ellie nodded and took a sip of her beer, just like Sylvia. There are serious management issues at our local hospital. But don't go there. I can imagine. I've heard a few stories. So you like being an ambo? Yes, I do. But I don't know how long I can keep it up. Nick frowned but said nothing. I'm not paid. I do it voluntarily. Well, that must be hard. How do you exist? It was okay for a while, but my money tree stopped bearing fruit. I'll have no choice soon but to get another job. So why did you take it in the first place? My dad died a few years ago, and I felt a bit lost. Working ambulance filled that void. What sort of work will you look for? I don't really know. I haven't given it much thought. I guess I assume my inheritance would last a bit longer. The South Australia Police has a website which includes non-operational positions. Here, I'll write it down for you. He scribbled on the back of his beer coaster. As he handed it to her, one of his mates at the bar yelled out something lewd, followed by a wolf whistle. He put a hand to his forehead and uttered an apology. You don't have to be sorry, Nick. If the roles were reversed, Sylvia would have done the same thing if I'd given you my number. But I didn't give you my number. Well, no. But they obviously thought you did. Ellie was aware that her tone was huffy, but she couldn't help it. His comment upset her. I'd love to give you my number, he said quickly, but only if you promise you'll call me. She grinned at him and picked up her glass, aware that her cheeks were glowing, but she didn't care. Sure, she said as she clinked her glass against his. It's a deal. Another comment was fired from the bar. Ellie glanced at Nick but he was staring at his shoe. His smile aped her own. Her breath came out as a giggle. It had been a long time since she felt so happy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Quiet End. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.